Welcome, and thanks for joining us for NFCC's Guide Through the Seasons of Mental Wellness. I am your host, Tracy Lehman, licensed marriage and family therapist and outreach counselor for the Nick Finnegan Counseling Center here in Houston, Texas. We are here to offer a compass for navigating the development of self, partnerships, parenting, and the general network of connections you build across a lifetime. Welcome. For today's episode, we will be discussing the birth of self-esteem. From birth to death, self-esteem is a consistent and vital force in our personal lives that drives how we function in relationships and understand ourselves in the world. Assisting me in navigating this topic, I have one of my therapy heroes, Diane Vines, LMFTS, LPCS, RPTS. Diane serves as the Neurosequential Model of Therapy Program Coordinator. In this role, she provides both clinical and program-related development, administration, and support for the Neurosequential Network's individual and site certification programs. She, a longtime Child Trauma Academy Fellow and a clinician in private practice, has received her master's degree in marriage and family therapy at the University of Houston Clear Lake in 1999. Ms. Vines is a licensed marriage and family therapist supervisor and a licensed professional counselor supervisor in the state of Texas and is also a registered play therapist supervisor. Diane provides individual and family therapy as well as clinical supervision. She has worked, trained, and specialized in the areas of child sexual abuse, incest, and childhood trauma since 1998. And she frequently provides community trainings and case consultations. Diane has formerly worked at the Houston Child Advocacy Center, formerly Children's Assessment Center. She has also served on Houston Association for Marriage and Family Therapy Board and the Kids and Youth Protecting Other Kids Board. Welcome, Diane. It's fun to be here. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you. So we're talking about self-esteem. This is a new area that you have been really interested in. And I consider you, and I think most people consider you that I know, an expert when it comes to child development and trauma in the therapy world. And I was wondering if you could just share us kind of your story, what brought you into this field and how you became interested in the development of (laughs) self-esteem. Okay. So probably you and most other therapists you know became a therapist because they wanted to help people. I did not. (laughs) I wasn't interested in helping anybody. I was interested in understanding people. (laughs) Through that, I learned, well, you know, you went to the same program. So you learn way more about yourself than you ever wanted to know (laughs) and about other people. (laughs) And, And so then you wind up in a position, and then I, through my internship, then I wanted to help people. By the time I finished, I really did want to help people, and I still do, which is why I like to do presentations and, and anything that talks to crowds, because I think when you have the keys and you have the cheat sheet, you can make life so much easier. Um, and I'm all for that. I am all for making it easier if you can. So, so that's that's how I'm here. How I got to be curious about uh, self-esteem, really, I didn't, it, it mm-hmm. just happened. It happened. It, I just started connecting these dots. Little things kept happening. I kept reading things and learning things and observing things. 
And I just started connecting the dots. And after a while, it just became clearer to me anyway. And, you know, this is my opinion. And, and when you asked me to do this talk, people have been thinking the same thing. So it's like, okay, well, I'm not sitting here by myself thinking about this. Other people are too. But um, it's little things, things I've done at work, things I've done personally, me personally, family members, friends, clients experiences, um, trainings that I've been to, all of it just started to come together. And I started thinking about self-esteem in a different way. So that's really, and, and because it's just like, it, it, it turned into this eureka moment. So now I'm excited about it. But before I was just, oh, that's curious. Hmm, that's interesting. <laughs> yes, as most theories start, right? Something something gets our interest and we want to learn more and usually it's about us. I think that's how I became because I'm the anxious one. I became the one who works a lot with anxiety because oh, that's how it works. That's what's happening there. So I get that. I follow that. Yeah. So we've all kind of have an abstract idea of what self-esteem is. Um but could you clarify for everyone and tell us what you mean exactly when you're saying self-esteem? Okay, so, you know, like a lot of other terms that get now popularized, uh, self-esteem, you know, like trauma, self-esteem is another one. And because people have generalized and broadened it so much, I'm not sure that, you know, when one person says self-esteem, it may not mean the same thing as another person when they say it. So just for this talk, Mm -hmm. let's define it as the awareness that you are or that you have something of value, you are someone of value, and that you can do and contribute something of value to the groups to which you belong. And I say groups because people are social. We absolutely need other people. That is normal. That's the way our brains are put together. We have huge parts of our brain networks devoted to forming and maintaining relationships. Um, there is a, something called mirror neurons that are just designed to help you tune into other people because people are social and we have to cooperate and we need relationships. And so that is, um, and it's so important to be part of your group. If one of the biggest threats humans can make, which by the way, although we need other people, humans are our biggest threat. So there's that sweet spot, but one of the biggest threats you can experience as a human is to be rejected and ejected from your group. There are very few things that feel more threatening. So self-esteem, again, is the awareness and the belief that you are someone who has something of value to contribute to your groups. Yeah. And that makes so much sense to me. That's a perfect definition, I'd say. I think that probably fits most people's viewpoint of self-esteem. Uh, and I, I love how you connected it then to our relational theories, because that's what I always talk to people about is how cells can't exist. I think the world is social. Like every living thing in this world is social because trees can't survive without other trees. Cells can't survive without other cells. If our neurons aren't connecting to other neurons, our brain gets rid of them. You know, it is not safe to not be in a community. And so that makes so much sense right. that it's such a threat to our survival, to be rejected, to lose access to our community. So why? Absolutely. Yeah. So why 
So in that term, so that's how why self-esteem is so important. But how does it affect our mental health when our self-esteem, maybe we don't think we have value. Maybe we can't figure that out or maybe we've lost that feeling. Oh my goodness. There's so, almost every domain of functioning um, can be impacted as far as I'm concerned. I mean, even physically, when you feel like, you know, when you feel like, let's say you're breaking up with someone there or more specifically, they're breaking up with you. You know, that feeling that you get, it's like, no, no, that and how your body feels. That's a stressor. And, and, and by the way, let me just say that stress is not necessarily bad. In fact, you need some stress. Uh, if you just need stress, not an unmanageable amount and a constant amount, but stress is necessary and mm-hmm. sometimes healthy, but which we'll probably talk about later. But yeah. that feeling, you know, if that stays activated long enough because you know or you sense that you're not worthy, you know, like Brene Brown says, worthy of love and belonging. If you don't have that sense, you're going to be, your, your stress response system is going to be activated too much and too often. And we already know there's plenty of research out there that shows how that affects you physically, even. I mean, things like cancer, heart disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, all that kind of stuff. Um, and how obviously how it affects you emotionally. So suicide, maladaptive coping behaviors as you try to make yourself feel better. So drinking too much, drug abuse, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It affects all kinds of means of functioning. It also affects your ability to maintain healthy connection to other people. So you may be too grasping, your boundaries get blurred, you you step all over other people's toes, you get offensive. I mean, I can't even, there's so many areas. Yeah, it affects literally everything. Our self-esteem, that's that's how we give ourselves worth. So it's a part of everything. As you're, I'm listening to you talking, I'm thinking about, well, you brought up breakup. So I'm thinking of a particular relationship I was in before I met my husband. And this guy kept trying to break up with me and I would not let it happen. He was trying to do me a favor, I think, now looking back at it. But I was just like, absolutely not. You're going to, because it was so scary, that feeling, that association with like, no, I'm good enough. You don't leave me. People don't leave me. I'm good enough. That fear was there. Um, So yeah. And then, and then I think about, you know, people that have too, like, is there a way to have too much self-esteem? Is there a way to be like too like over egoized or overconfident or just think you think your stuff doesn't smell? Okay, so if we define self-esteem the way I defined it, I don't think you can have too much. Now, so and that is because if you have actual self-esteem and you know we define it as you have something of value to offer, that means you also want to offer it. <laughs> um <laughs> And so that is, that really does benefit the group and it benefits you as well. Um, So it's kind of reciprocal. The more you give, the more you get. I mean, that's just one of those principles that seems to be true in life. If you are striving for self-esteem, that's different. And so if all what people see is basically what looks like narcissism, that's different. So, you know, let's talk about the difference between actual self-esteem and trying to make sure other people know 
that you have value, which is then you trying to get feedback from your environment that yes, you have value so that then you will have self-esteem. You know, that's kind of a subtle difference, but Mm -hmm. so one of the things that I have, and it's just through an experience that I had traveling under the name of somebody famous, how everybody treated me differently. And I thought, you know what? (laughs) I'm nobody. You can calm down. Um, (laughs) But everywhere I went, they're like, (gasps) and you know, the running around started and you know, the extra effort and help and concession. And I was like, Oh, this is weird. And, but by the end, I thought this is why people want money because people treat you better now. And so a lot, and sometimes people who, have money or people who want to appear to have money will buy a certain car, live in a certain neighborhood, send their kids to certain schools, wear certain clothes, carry certain labels, because that is the outward manifestation. Those material things represent the outward manifestation of your resources that you have available to you that you could share with the group for the betterment of the group. So I don't think it's necessarily about the acquisition of all that stuff. It's so that other people can see it, realize that you have value, and then you're safe. Your position in your group is safe. And the higher the status you have in your group, the safer you are and the less likely you are to be ejected from your group. I, I, once read a book uh, by Jody Pico. You know, she wrote My Sister's Keeper, and I, this was called The Lone Wolf. And it, you know, it's a fiction book, but Jody does a lot of research before she writes. And it was about this guy who was researching wolves, and he went to go live with a wolf pack in Quebec <laughs> um, in the winter to observe their their behaviors. And so, wolves are social animals as well. But one of the things that struck me in that book is that wolves, like a lot of canines, have a social hierarchy. There's the alpha and then everybody that comes underneath it. But with wolves, even the lowest member of the pack has value. And anytime they lose any wolf in a wolf pack, highest to lowest, they have to replace it because that member, no matter how low, has value. Which is kind Mm -hmm. of beautiful when you think about it, right? So that no matter what, no matter where you are in, in the order of things, you're important. Cause that's what we all want to know that we're too important to get rid of that. And mm-hmm. so when you realize that that's your self-esteem, I am too, too important to get rid of no matter where I am, no matter, you know, what I'm contributing, it's of value to someone. I'm thinking about how it's kind of this. Well, one of the things that came to mind was keeping up with the Joneses, right? I don't really have self-esteem. I'm just trying to look like I have something, like I fit. Um, and I think that fear of fitting is part of like not having self-esteem. That's that's the the reason we want self-esteem is so we don't have to deal with that fear. Um, right. But it's almost a reinforcing cycle because I think of people and maybe they don't, you know, maybe they're not a, a have versus have not. Like, I don't think that even actually in our heads we think it plays in, but I don't think it does because I'm thinking about people who have true self-esteem 
they're like the people that are just comfortable being who they are when I think about it. And then in the group, and we feed that, right? Like, so it feeds back itself. I'm comfortable with myself. You're responding to it and you're liking what I'm putting out there. And so it just sits in cyclings and you're just good. And I love, like, those are always the people I strive to be. I'm not going to say I'm there. I'm not there yet. But, um, but, but that, I mean, (laughs) I think it's, it's a life, it's a life work. Um, But people like that, I just think, I, whenever I see them, I'm just like, I know it because they're just so comfortable with who they are and in, in where they're at. Exactly. And you know what? Isn't that interesting? That is something of value. When mm-hmm. you know that no matter what you do, that, you know, someone may not agree with it. They may be angry at you for it, but they're not going to get rid of you. Mm-hmm. That That's self-esteem. And that is the biggest gift. So when people are, because one of, you know, when I was in graduate school, there was a uh, one of the moms at the school where my daughter attended was told me to read Reviving Ophelia. And at the same time, I had to take the feminist perspectives class. And by the end of that semester, I was so angry because not because, you know, not because I'm an oppressed woman. That's not it at all. It yeah. is because I got duped <laughs> as a kid. <laughs> no, I, we all you know, we all do. Yeah. I got duped. I was told in order to be loved, you need to shove yourself into this box and fit. Mm-hmm. And what those two things told those two, the class in the book told me is, no, you don't, <laughs> you don't have, <laughs> you don't have to do any of that. And that is all a lie because you can shove yourself in there if you want to, and you will still be very uncomfortable. You won't fit. Um, mm-hmm. And what helped me was to realize that we all been duped. So I'm not the only sucker. So after that, I thought, you know what? Now everybody's going to get the real thing. Sorry, sorry for you, because <laughs> look out, <laughs> it's going to get real in here. And do you know what happened? Because I was shoving myself in that box because I wanted to be accepted. Because yeah. I'm a, you know, I'm a, I was a shy kid. I didn't want to, you know, I wanted to be able to sit at the lunch table with other kids, uh, preferably the more popular ones, just like everybody else. So, you know, so when I realized that oh no, I don't have to do all that. And I'm not going to do all that. People Mm -hmm. actually liked me better. It was the biggest irony because it gives them permission to take the veils off too. Mm -hmm. And and to be real, you know, I have a friend um, and we go to dinner once a month and there was something she was telling me that was, you know, particularly embarrassing. And I just laughed and I said, I'm, you know, I'm laughing because I, I get it. I've done it too. She says, oh, I know. That's why I'm telling you. <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, it's that because then when people are able to accept their own imperfections and embrace who they are, it gives you permission to do the same thing and be genuine. You know what I mean? And that feels good. It's like, wait, you're, because there's so many people walking around with this belief that if you really knew me, you wouldn't like me. Mm-hmm. And what we all need, what we all want, and the biggest gift to all of us would be for people to really see us, warts, buried bodies, the whole thing and go, you know what? That was dumb. That's crazy. <laughs> but you know what? You're my ride or die. That's it. Yeah. I don't care. That's yeah. I don't care. You are my dog. That's it. You know what you just did? You just connected self-esteem to vulnerability. I'm connecting yeah. the pieces as you're listening. I'm like, well, because I'm thinking there's a, there's a... a relatively new friendship I have. And, um, and this person that I'm, you know, all of a sudden kind of just stopped, like fell off the earth. 
And I had, I was like, I finally was like, cause she wouldn't even come up to me. You know, she saw me passing the street. Like there was no interaction all of a sudden. And I'm thinking, and I'm not like that. Like I can't handle that. My anxiety, the way I've learned to cope with my anxiety is I just put it out there. Just put it, say it, right? So anyways, so I finally reach out to her and I'm like, are you, is something wrong? Are you upset? And and she says, she is upset. And then that's it. But I, I don't get to hear, because she doesn't have that. And so I'm thinking, she doesn't have that veil lifted. Like she was raised under this, like you have a mask. You put this side of yourself out. And it's not, and and the response I have was, I'm not safe either. If you're not safe around me, then what are you hiding from me? I'm not safe either. Oh, yes. You know, this exactly. discomfort, <laughs> you know? And so I think self-esteem, so yeah, it frees us so from that. I have the same thing. You know, there are people that it's, it, their whole presentation is don't look at that. Look at this shiny, yeah. shiny. And I'm like, mm, that's too much shiny. Now I got to know what you're hiding. Because I, yeah. I can't feel safe unless I know what it is you're hiding. Could be a snake. Yeah. I don't know. But I'm looking now. <laughs> if yeah. you give me nothing to look at, if, you, if you're just out there, and I realize there are no skeletons because there are no closets, mm-hmm. then we can relax. We can, yeah. I, you know, I tell my husband all the time, please, for the love of God, do not be perfect because I can't do it. <laughs> and I'll just feel bad because <laughs> I can't deliver what you are. So, but I feel that way about my friends too. I don't need them to be perfect. I just need them to be real. And then yeah. I'm safer. I'm safer. So yeah. So one of those little dots that I connected was Brene Brown mm-hmm. and her work. Yeah. yeah. Cause that stops us. That stops us from feeling okay with ourselves. That fear of if somebody sees this piece, it won't be safe anymore. Right. Yeah. And then if somebody's hiding their piece, then I suddenly, well, for me, maybe this is a self-esteem. My self-esteem isn't where it needs to be. But I feel like, what what's wrong with me that this person has to hide from me? What am I putting out exactly. there? And it's just this whole is- fear spiral happens. Exactly. You're absolutely right. So knowing that when, um, when we're about parenting and I'm thinking, when does this start? And I'm like, it must start from birth. Like we must start to develop this it must start really early. And all of us were raised with like, put these veils on. Or I mean, I think that's kind of the story you told about like, oh, I don't have to fit in this box. And I definitely felt that way. I remember because I was very, I was ADHD and nobody knew it, I think. And and so I'd get really impulsive and really hyper. And I remember people trying to help me fit in and they'd be like, calm down, calm down. And so I was like trying to like stop my impulses and like pull myself into this. But that's not, you know, like I have life and I want to I want to express and I want to be excited. Um, And people (laughs) did not like that at that time. Um, But that's what I remember. I remember people being like, shh, shh, don't, don't, don't. And then the message you get is I'm not good enough the way I am. No, I got to hide it. I got to tone it down, learn some impulse, pinch yourself or something to stop yourself from getting too excited, you know? Um, So how do we stop that? How do we how do we, when we're raising, because we all want our kids to have self-esteem. I can't, I don't think there's ever been a parent that I've worked with that hasn't said, I worry about my child feeling good about themselves and knowing they can succeed. Exactly. And so how do we start right. that? What so, do we need to do? Uh, well, one, let me start with one big thing. Do not coddle your children. Mm. Do not. Now, there's no such thing as coddling a newborn. You can't do it. They, they are not, you know, people will say, you know, years ago, there was that Ferber method where people were, you know, let your baby cry it out and put them on a schedule. 
that really is formalized neglect. Um, mm-hmm. Don't do that. Babies cry because they need something. They're hungry, thirsty, cold, wet, scared, whatever it is. And we're supposed to take care of it um, pretty quickly and pleasantly. So, um, co- but coddling your children tells your child inadvertently, you know, when you do things for someone. So this was, an, these were another couple of dots. Rita Pearson, who unfortunately is deceased, but I've seen her speak twice on the culture of poverty. And one of the things that stuck out for me is that when we do things for and to people that they can and should be doing for themselves, we do them a disservice because the unintended message you send that person is you are too stupid, incompetent, immature, whatever it is, unskilled, untalented to do it yourself. I have to do it for you. Mm-hmm. And that message means, you know, by extension, I'm not enough as I am. Mm-hmm. And I may never be enough. Someone, And I will always be beholden to these other people to do for me. Yeah, I'm at their mercy. Uh, and I have no agency. That is the last thing most parents want their kids feeling. So mm-hmm. don't coddle your children. Um, and, they, you know, so as I'm thinking about this, it, you know, it's my belief set. But then I look up and I did not coddle my daughter. Uh, <laughs> believe me, I didn't. I wasn't coddled either. Uh, now, did I love her with my whole heart? And I think she's the most amazing creature on earth. Absolutely. Still do. But. Growing up, there were, you know, it's just like she'd lose something. And seriously, I'd be like, well, this is why I tell you, don't put it down, put it away. I'm not helping you look. (laughs) (laughs) I put my things away. (laughs) Mean mom. But uh, she's she's tough. So anyway, uh, then I look, I'm looking up coddling, you know, research articles and somebody had done they had done a research study, but they pulled, they called from that an, a, um, a smaller study on the coddling of black boys by black mothers and raising their daughters. So they would coddle their boys and raise their daughters. Mm-hmm. In this study, most of the fathers of these children were absent. But, you know, now when we look at data, you look at the outcomes of that. There are, two, there are disproportionate numbers of black males in prison on mm-hmm. substances, homeless, what, you know, all those negative outcomes, quite possibly, maybe because they were coddled. Conversely, there are more black women who go to college and finish, finish high school, you know, get careers, all that kind of stuff. They were told you have to take care of the boys were told you can't take care of anything. I have to do it for you. And Mm -hmm. it's usually a woman doing it. So Mm -hmm. what a disservice and what a loss of potential. Don't coddle your kids. So that's the first thing I would say, um, because it just, it fosters dependency. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it's important to be consistent and predictable and to have limits, boundaries, and structure, but it's also important to be nurturing and playful and Mm -hmm. to be attentive, attuned, responsive. Those are, those are really, you need to be attentive and present, (laughs) really present, Mm -hmm. uh, not just in the room, but present, attentive, attuned, and responsive to your kids. That Mm -hmm. way you can, 
impose limits, boundaries, and structure. You know, when people think of boundaries and they tend to think it's limiting and, you know, oppressive, but the way I describe a boundary is if you're on the 12th floor with a balcony and you step out and there's no railing as a boundary, that's pretty darn scary. (laughs) I wouldn't go out there. But you don't mind doing it if there's a railing. That's your boundary to keep you from plummeting to the pavement. So boundaries are meant to keep you safe. It, now, the, you're not chained to the balcony. So there's some you know freedom out there. There's things you could do. You can pull out a lawn chair. You could get a, you know, a beverage and a snack and sit out there, whatever. So there, you have some freedom out there. But there's only so far you're going to go before you plummet. So, you know, it's the same thing with your kids. I I firmly believe in natural consequences, Mm -hmm. you know, because the things you do come with, you know, people say that consequences, I'm going to use outcomes. Outcomes come bundled with decisions. It's not the cafeteria style where you get to pick, I'm going to do this stupid thing and there will be no negative outcomes from that. You don't know that (laughs) you do the stupid thing, negative outcomes are potent, you know, come potentially attached to it. You drive too fast, you could get a ticket. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't say, I'm going to drive too fast and not get a ticket. You don't know that. So, so I believe in natural consequences because what that tells you and what the, and let, and let kids have them because, well, with, that's why you have limits, boundaries, and structures. So they don't fall too far. Right. Um, because what they need to know is, my choice, my decision had this impact on me and the people I care about and others around me. If I don't like the impact, I got to choose something else next time. So feeling shame is never a useful construct. Feeling guilty, fine. <laughs> That's okay. It's like, well, you know, next time I ha- I actually went to a workshop many years ago where, and they were talking about parenting. And one of the phrases that they suggested using very calmly with your kids is, you know, you give them a choice, A, B, both choices are fine with you and they choose C. Well, that wasn't on the, that wasn't on the menu. And so you tell them when they choose C, well, and then, and then they start crying because now there's an outcome you, yeah, that they don't like. It's like, well, this is why I told you blah, blah, blah. So I see you don't like your choice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hope you choose better next time. Done. Yeah. Your your kid, it's 40 degrees outside. Your kid won't wear their coat. All right. Well, we're going to the store and you're going to be cold. No, they don't want to wear it. Okay. Now they're outside and they're cold. Well, this is why mommy told you to put a coat on. So now mm-hmm. I see you're cold. Now we have to go home. I don't want to go home. Well, you know what? I hope next time when it's cold outside, you'll put on a coat so we can stay. Mm-hmm. Done. You do it calmly. Um, that way they know that they have, they could have, they have choices, but they come with outcomes and they can empower what they do. They can, they can be empowered by what they do and they can have outcomes by choosing, uh, making right decisions mm-hmm. and they have impact on other people. So I think that's also important. And I love that you said that because I think with parents, they get so overwhelmed. You know, there's a lot of us perfectionist parents out there. Mm-hmm. And I think when they hear like boundaries and this and this and this and this, and they're like, okay, everything that my child does, I have to respond with all six of these things and, and get my checklist out, you know? And so then, but when you tell the story of it, it doesn't sound stressful. It doesn't sound frantic. It's calm. It's 
my child got to make a decision. I let them make the decision. I let them know there would probably be, this would be the outcome of their decision. And that's what happened. And we were calm about exactly. it. it. It doesn't have to be this frantic, crazy thing. It's just these moments that you get these opportunities to teach. Exactly, exactly. And you know what? It's also important to let your kids have their emotions. I want to cover that in a second, but I'm also thinking about a cl- when I first started graduate school, there was a prerequisite class I had to take on psychopathology. And at the end, the professor asked us what we learned. And I was like, oh, I have to be a perfect parent. She said, no, you don't. <laughs> no, that's not good. Um, she said, because, and this stuck with me, you know, this is decades earlier. If you are a perfect parent, you do your kids a disservice <laughs> because they do need some stress. At this, now we're now at the stress. It needs to be predictable, moderate, and controlled. But they need some stress. That's how you develop resilience. Mm-hmm. When your stress is unpredictable, severe, and uncontrolled, then you're vulnerable. So one of the things she said is, you know, which I believe and I've seen uh, in practice in life and with clients. You, if you coddle your kids and you are a perfect parent. And trust me, the rest of the world will not be. The minute your child crosses the threshold to the real world, they will have no practice, no muscle, no stress control for managing. Don't, no, you can't, you're not first, you're not the best, you have to wait, it's mm-hmm. not your turn. They have. They can't manage that. Mm-hmm. And life, it, all day long, life offers you opportunities to practice dealing with waiting, being frustrated, not getting your way, being last, losing, failing. (laughs) Life is replete with opportunities to deal with that. And if you have no practice, you're in trouble. Mm -hmm. You're in a lot of trouble. So to the professor into the class, where she took her kids to the, I don't know if it was a store or supermarket or something. And she said, you know what? I think she had two boys. Before we go in here, you're going to ask me for stuff and I'm going to practice saying no. (laughs) So they ran up and down the aisles and they said, mommy, can we have this? She said, no. Can we have that? No. And after a while, everybody was giggling. (laughs) And so, uh, and they made a game out of it. But um, yeah. So, you know, the other thing I was thinking of too, while we're talking about this, you, you know, you were saying this has to start early. If you remember the Erickson stages, he was brilliant. When you think about it, he was brilliant because the first stage, which takes place from birth to about 18 months, is trust versus mistrust. Mm-hmm. Babies are learning then is, can I trust you? Will you come when I call? Are mm-hmm. people trustworthy? You know, what do I have to do to uh, be safe in this world? Mm-hmm. And so when they can just be, that's a really good start then because you know, those stages build on each other. The next yeah. one is autonomy versus shame. And what they're learning is, is, is it okay to be me? And then the next stage is, is initiative versus guilt. And then they learn, is it okay to do move and act? And then the fourth stage, you know, now you're six to 12 years old is industry versus inferiority. Can I make it in the world of people and things? You see how all these things build on self-esteem. So you get to practice, you get to fail, you get to figure out what, you know, brainstorm, problem solve, regroup, try again and do it with support. And then when you succeed, you can go, yay, you did it. Kind of like Gary Landreth with the play therapy. He will not (laughs) 
those kids are struggling. <laughs> oh, you're really struggling with that. But when they get it, when they finally get it, he's like, look, you did it all by yourself. That feels good. I, yeah. Some of the things I look back on my life, things that I did that were just, I look back now and I'm thinking, boy, I was nuts. <laughs> I can't believe I even tried that um, and pulled it off. And I'm still very proud of those things. So, but you, but in order to do that, there has to be room for failure or you know, so you can make a mistake, know that you can recover from a mistake. That starts early. You got to let your kids have room to make mistakes. And let your kids do their own homework. I always tell this to parents because yes. when I was a little girl, I didn't do my own homework. You're going to hate to hear the story. So I'll never forget. I had a diorama that I do, you know, those little shoe boxes and you decorate and we mm-hmm. were doing uh, the dinosaur age. I can't remember what the term is for it. And and so I was I bought my clay and I had my box and I had this whole great idea and I went to school that day and I came home ready to do it. It was done. My mom did it. And my mom's an artist. You know? And mm-hmm. and so I remember I got a 95, I got five points off because it was too good. She knew my mom did it. And I remember yeah. a New Zealand presentation that I was so excited to do. And my dad put the poster together for me. And I and that was kind of my life. So I'm like putting this into play in my own because it took me a long time to develop the ability to feel okay being me. I mean, I'm still working on it, but it took a long time. Right. Tracy, think about those messages. You know, they love you and they want to see you do well and they want to see you get a trophy. But even if you got it, it's not your trophy because you know you didn't do it. Then you start thinking, don't they think I can do it? I guess they don't because they did it for me. Yeah. I remember a feeling when I got home and saw that, even though it was gorgeous, I was so disappointed because I'd really been excited to do it. You know, I felt like I lost an experience. And I have great parents. I love them. If they're listening, I love you guys. I'm not saying anything bad. This is how you did it. Nobody has a a rule book. But I mean, that was that's something that has stuck with me, that that's what that that's how that happened. Absolutely. And they had the best of intentions. That's the thing. They had the best of intentions. And I know that. And there's no such thing as a perfect parent. God knows I was not. No. I can I have I can regale you of stories where I failed many times. So we all do the best we can with what we have. However, you, you know, like for instance, my daughter, well, this is not this is we won't go into mine right this minute. Although I, I could tell you about a story of teaching her to ride a bike where it's like, I'm just like, God, the worst mother ever. So she was in school and they, in lower school, and they were drawing these pictures and she hit this, uh, and I have it hanging in the play therapy off, uh, room in, in my office, but it's a pic, it's a little jungle scene. And I love it. It's beautiful. Uh, and my daughter is pretty creative and she, uh, you know, with the colors on it, our teacher, after she turned it in, added a few strokes. My daughter was so disgusted. She said, now it's not even my picture. Now I don't even like it anymore. And you know what? I would have loved it just as much if the art teacher hadn't touched it. Mm-hmm. You know, and so it's a, it's the same story that you're, you're, you know, similar story to the one you're giving, which is I'm proud of my work. Why aren't you proud of me? You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. And that's, a, see, that's the self-esteem. I have something of value to offer. Not, not enough. Not quite, you know, and so <laughs> I have more. <laughs> well, who needs that message? <laughs> also, of course you have more. You've got, I mean, at that time, probably 30 years on me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's exactly right. You should have more. Shame on you if you don't. <laughs> but you, Oh, you brought something up the pri- that I wanted to ask you that popped into my head while you were talking. You said being proud of yourself. I find pride 
to be this double-edged sword. And I want to know what your thoughts are about this. Like, I think sometimes pride is like, I don't feel like I have value. And it's like this fake armor. Like I think about fights that, that couples have where they can't handle what's coming and, and they put up this, they have this pride wall where they can't apologize. I think apologizing is so important, but I, that pride comes up. We can't take accountability. So I think there's that side of it. But then the other side is like, there's pride of like, I'm proud of myself. Like I have pride in what I'm doing and you're not going to take that from me. And so I kind of was curious what your take was on kind of pride in terms of self-esteem and how it's kind of can serve these two roles or maybe the first one's just like false pride. That was it. False pride. That's, that is, I would call that stubborn. I would call that fearful. I would call that, um, someone who's afraid to admit that they were wrong. And so they try to act like they have pride, but that's not pride. Actually, when you're really proud of who you are, you can admit it. You can admit a mistake. You can go, you know what? I blew that. And I'm really sorry. Mm-hmm. Right. Because yeah. it doesn't detract from who you are or what you have to offer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I always tell parents, apologize to your kids if you feel guilty. Absolutely. If you feel like you screwed it up somewhere, apologize. I I have <laughs> I have some clients where it's easy because they're very, very sensitive for good reasons. I get it. That's why they're in therapy in the first place. And I've screwed it up and I've apologized. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, I, I'm so sorry. You're right. I blew that. Yeah. Um, yeah, because no one is perfect. And I think it's so important for our kids to get that message that, and this goes back to the self-esteem, that your value doesn't disappear just because you made a mistake. That's beautiful. Yes. Your value yeah. does not just evaporate and disappear because you made a mistake. Mm-hmm. Mistakes are yeah, part of life. Exactly. So we've kind of talked about this, but do you have any like specific tools you want to point out for parents that might be listening who maybe are worried about their kids' self-esteem or um, just want to get a good start with their kids' self-esteem? Well, I think it's important for parents. The most important tools they have to help their kids with their self-esteem are their ears, their eyes, their arms, their heart, their time, their patience. And at least their attempts to understand where their kids are coming from. So their empathy, that, that, that goes a long way. Also, parents need to be able to self-regulate. What that means is, you know, there's, um, I don't know if you're, if you or who has familiar with the Brene Brown's parenting manifesto. I think it is beautiful. And there's something, um, there are a couple of phrases in here, like you you will learn accountability and respect by watching me make mistakes, make amends, by watching how I ask for what I need and talk about how I feel. Together, we will cry and face fear and grief. I will want to take away your pain, but instead, I will sit with you and teach you how to feel it. Those are... I love that. Isn't that amazing? Mm-hmm. Because... because First of all, just remember your kids, you're not going to be around forever. The, what you're doing, the job of a parent is not, I want 2.5 children. You know, this, these are my accessories for my, (laughs) to go along with my house and car. Um, (laughs) But the, my, your job as a parent is to raise a person to be a grown up. What kind of grown up do you want that person to be? That's your goal. I, I, I had to do that myself when I was pregnant. I was like, because, you know, I have zero patience. And I thought, oh my God, what kind of mother am I going to be? I don't have any patience. 
So I literally went through this exercise of what kind of human being do I want my child to be? And I, you know, I, some of my goals were I want them to be happy. I want them to be healthy, educated. I wanted them to have a faith life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then you have to think about, well, okay, what do children need in order to get there? And then what part do I play in terms directly? And what part do I get other people to play? You know, because it we're community. Um, and then all your parenting decisions are based on that. Not what feels good in the moment because you're tired or lazy or whatever it is. It's, you know, essentially if your goals take your child to Canada and they ask for something that takes them to Mexico, then the answer is no, <laughs> we can't do that. Um, yeah. but if it at least takes them to say, I don't know, Oregon, well, it's closer. Let's talk about it. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah. But at least you have a target and you know what you're going for and, and you know the steps. And so you stick with that. It makes your parenting a whole lot easier. Also, you you have, you know, you know this from family life cycles. It's important to shift what you're doing as your child grows, because otherwise, you know, that's also self-esteem. You're still treating me like a baby. Okay. Don't you think I have any agency whatsoever? Okay. So you got to shift. Part of that is managing your own anxiety about what your kids are doing and where they're going, right? You have to do that. Watching them, you know, I've I've seen shows where kids, little kids, five, six years old are handling adult kitchen knives while in a cooking class. Yes, I know. It's crazy. <laughs> that gives me anxiety. Adult tools, hammers and nails and saws and stuff, you know, and the kids are five and six. I'm like, oh my God. But, you know, you do it with supervision, mm-hmm. you know, scaffolding. That's how we learn. And mm-hmm. we learn through practice and, you know, and you have some safeguards, but you let kids practice. And then when they build it, it's like, I did this. I'm mm-hmm. so proud of myself. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say that you have a tar- have a goal in mind. Um, Use, be attentive, attuned, responsive, patient, make room for mistakes. And and remember that kids are learning, you know, they, they are learning to be older. They're learning how to fit into the world, how to get along with people. They don't have it all down. You cannot expect a a two-year-old to say please and thank you all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, So have some people. You know, a lot of abuse, physical abuse especially, happens because people have such unrealistic expectations of what children are capable of doing. Uh, Because developmentally, they're just not there. You know, potty training. You don't even have the muscle control. You can't expect a 15-month-old to be potty trained. It's just silly. Uh, Shame on you for doing it. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, understand. I I really think if if you're confused about that, get some child development classes under your belt so you know what kids are capable of doing. You're, t- you know, the job of a parent is to teach a child to be a capable, responsible, happy adult. The job of a mm-hmm. child is to learn and experiment on how to do that. Um, so I think those are important. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's important to, yeah. So, and, and like you said earlier, to, you know, apologize to your kids when you make a mistake. You're not going to do it perfectly and neither are they. Yeah. And be okay with that for yourself. So that kind of leads us into the next mm-hmm. question because like, Yes, do all these things to make our kids, you know, independent, 
you know, I, one of my biggest things when I work with parents, especially as they're approaching teens, I'm like, okay, so in elementary school, you can help them talk to their teachers or talk to their teachers about what's going on. But by middle school, let's shift some. They have to learn. I was so terrified of authority figures. I mm -hmm. mean, petrified of having to confront somebody. And, you know, so I have all my kids. I'm like, oh, you have an issue that happened with your teacher? You think they lost your work? Go talk to your teacher. Don't have your parents do it. Parents don't do it for your kids. Like have your child because that is a skill that will take you forward and that you have to learn to function in the yes. world. Life is not meant to be lived by yourself. And Absolutely. interdependence is the goal. Not even independence, interdependence. So the ability to ask for and accept, accept help when you need it and to offer it when others do, because you know that offering your skill set and your gifts and your support is part of that value that you have as a human to your tribe, to your group. So it's interdependence all the way. And I, I would say, don't do, don't, don't do life in isolation. Certainly don't do parenting in isolation. I, I have to say that there are, I, I, I was a single mom. And people mm -hmm. say, oh, it must have been hard to be a single mom. Not for me, because I had a tribe. There are there are other, my daughter's, <laughs> my daughter's closest friends' parents are some of my closest friends now. Um, and that's how we got to be friends through the school. And there have been parents throughout her years, some of them I'm not terribly in touch with anymore, who made it possible for me to do that. Th those are my tribe, and they they offered. I, mm -hmm. I feel like I need to pay it forward. They offered and didn't cost me anything. They're just, oh, no, no, don't drop her off at daycare. Bring her here. Uh, they literally mm -hmm. did that. It was such a blessing. So we all need to support one another yeah. so that we can get things done, so that we can get some rest, so that we can be better regulated for our kids, so that we're snapping and biting, not snapping and biting your heads off and then kicking ourselves for doing it. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think to listen empathically, is important. And you know, it's amazing when you can get away with <laughs> telling people, you know, this as a therapist, if you can do it from a position of support and love and respect and understanding, even if you don't agree with what they're doing, mm -hmm. uh, if they know that you, you have their back and you're on their side, you can tell them just about anything yeah. and they'll be able to, people do not listen until they felt heard. So you got to listen first. Yes. Otherwise they put on their lawyer hats and wait to get their words in. That's what I always tell couples. Uh -huh. You're putting, you're waiting for your lawyer hat to be able to get put on. <laughs> but um, no, you so brought this full circle. Ugh. See, Diane, this is why you are just a goddess of information. Um, you just brought us full circle. We started out with how important connection is, and we're ending with how important connection is. You know, I think about everything has a cycle. Everything support each supports each other. Water, air, everything. Everything in this world has a cycle that depends on each part of that cycle to participate. And having a village is so important. And so I thank you so much for ending us there. That was perfect. Thank you so much for um, coming today and being here and speaking with me. I found this amazing. I loved it. And um, I really appreciate it. I hope we can do it again in the future. And I'd love to. Thank you for inviting me into the tribe. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of NFCC's Guide Through the Seasons of Mental Wellness. Please let us know your thoughts by leaving a review and subscribe if you want to hear more of our content around managing mental health across the lifespan. If you would like to learn more about our work, 
events, and organization, please follow us on Instagram at Nick Finn Council or on Facebook at Nick Finnegan Counseling Center. NFCC is here because counseling matters. Special thanks to Jim Roman for composing our wonderful intro-outro music. Until next time, remember to make time for your mental health.